brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hi, Andrew Dunkley here. Hope you're well. Fred and I are taking a little bit of a break, but to keep you going until our return, here are some of our choice episodes from 2022 featuring some of the big events in astronomy and space science. Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. So good to have your company and a very exciting episode coming up. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice there's an extra face, a much prettier face than mine and certainly uh, much superior to Fred's. Uh, now, <laughs> what we're talking about today is the DART mission, uh, which uh, happened, uh, well, our time yesterday. And we have someone who was on the ground with NASA uh, to experience it all and watch it all unfold. So uh, that's why Marie-Claire Mercier is joining us on this episode. We're also going to Mars because China has been digging deep into the uh, uh, interior of the planet and made an amazing discovery. And we will have audience questions about uh, the effects of an asteroid impact, strangely enough. And we are going to talk dark force theory, whatever that is. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And we welcome, as always, his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing Hello, today? I'm wet. Very, very oh, yeah, wet. Yeah, I am wet. so, so. I know, I know. Everyone's in drought in North America and Europe, and um, I feel for them as we just came out of a big drought. Seems so long ago now, but it is so wet here. Got rained look, on again today. Rained on yesterday. Rained on last week. Just, it's a mess. You look a bit damp, soggy. I have to say. You do look damp and a bit soggy around the edges. Yeah. Um, fortunately, yeah. it hasn't been wet here in Sydney because. Uh, half our roof was missing for most of the day uh, because oh, uh, the storms. Well, no, it wasn't. No, it was just uh, routine oh. routine maintenance on the roof. But uh, cho we chose a bad week for it, or rather, the roofers chose a bad week for it. Anyway, well, we had I a dry day chose today. A, chose a bad year, actually. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's been, yeah. been raining. And, it's been raining for nearly three years. You know, Fred. It's ridiculous. So they tell me. Yes, that's right. Mm. <laughs> also them. joining us is uh, Marie-Claire Mercier. Marie-Claire, it is so nice to have you join us on this edition of Space Nuts. Thank you so much. I know it's um, it's 1.30 or well, nearly 2 o'clock in the morning your time, so we really appreciate you um, putting the, the, the toothpicks in your eyes and, and staying awake for us. It's fabulous. <laughs> Thank you so much and welcome. My pleasure. Thank you so much for extending the invite so I can you know, share some of my insights uh, from yesterday's uh, Historic event. So really. Yes, yes indeed. It was uh, amazing. Uh, we might as well get stuck straight into it um, if you're ready, Fred, and uh, and and talk to you about uh, what happened yesterday. Um, Fred, I suppose just paint the picture for us. What, what was this all about? And then we'll uh, get Marie-Claire to explain what she saw. Yeah, the, the DART mission uh, spacecraft launched back in November last year with a half-ton spacecraft that essentially hit an asteroid by the name of Dimorphos, which is a moon of an asteroid called Didymos. And the idea is to see whether that impact will have changed the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos, because that might be one day the kind of thing that we need to do to deflect an asteroid that could be threatening our planet. And yeah. um, I'm going to 
stop there because we have an expert in the room with us uh, <laughs> who was there when that impact took place. Not uh, in front of Dimorphos, waiting for it to happen, but certainly uh, in the control room, which is very, very exciting. Indeed, very exciting. Murray Claire, just uh, tell us how it all unfolded yesterday. How did you get to go in the first place? How did that happen? So uh, I think we, we were, I just wanted to actually show you guys like uh, my shirt. Oh, look at from, the T-shirt. Um, from the Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, so official uh, part of the team. Um, so how did it happen? Because I believe NASA, every time they do have a project or upcoming project, they try to, uh, extend the invite to social media influencers or, uh, science, uh, science aficionados, uh, to apply mm -hmm. to their slots. And it so happened and it was, uh, last month, I, I, I remember it, uh, I was browsing through my Instagram and I was following, you know, NASA account, uh, Johns Hopkins ATL, and there was a slot to apply. And I applied and they got back to me a week after telling me I got accepted and the rest was history. Um, see, <laughs> meeting everybody. Indeed from, it was. Um, meeting everybody from yeah. NASA and the the lead mechanical engineers and the project managers for the whole DART mission was just very exhilarating and um, remarkable. Um, yeah. just it was a big day too, wasn't it? I mean, you were there for, um, what, 12 hours or something? Uh, yes. Basically, we had a full day's agenda because what happened was we had to be there at 8 a.m. There's a lot of security check, very, very tight security. And uh, not only we met uh, the head of the planetary defense, uh, Lindley Johnson, uh, I met Dr. Kelly Fast, uh, and uh, a lot of different people, Dr. Thomas Zerbikin, Dr. Bobby Braun from, you know, and uh, David Corelli, Lisa Bowman. And uh, they, they also allowed us to have a tour of the full uh, Johns Hopkins uh, APL uh, laboratories and uh, different workrooms. And the funniest thing is that we are we were escorted by so many people because um, there are certain areas where you can take pictures, but most of the area is very restricted. Even when you're just walking in a hallway, regardless, the hallway is just. Uh, Plane, but there may be a scientist carrying a classified record or talking to another scientist carrying another classified record uh, record yeah. that help record or take pictures. So it was it, it was um, like how we see it on movies. It, it felt that way when it comes to security. And wow. uh, they, now, um, tell us about the experience itself. I, I know you did a few tours and you got to see a lot of uh, the facility, but when it came to the crunch and you were in the room with everybody else watching this uh, this historic moment unfold, um, what what happened? I, I, I did see some of your social media posts, so I got, I got a bit of an insight into what was going on. But uh, what, from my perspective, I, I got to watch it on a small screen computer at, at my radio station and um, that that's as that's as close as I got, but for you, it was all big screen stuff by the look of it. It is. It was. It was. So basically, it's kind of like watching a real live Armageddon movie. Uh, you know, unfolding <laughs> right in front of me, and and obviously there was a lot of you can feel the tension and the pressure uh, in the room because uh, they have mentioned that. At that specific moment, we don't know what Dimorphos would look like, whether it could mm. be a donut-shaped asteroid or whether it just be a clumps of rocks uh, floating in air. We don't see that until a couple of minutes before impact. So it was really like uh, heart-wrenching to say until the final couple of minutes when the Draco camera was already showing at least that it's actually a denser solid uh, target 
yeah, we kind of live kind yeah. of like you it, know, it, al- it almost looks spherical to me. It uh, did. It almost had a uniform shape about it. Yes. Yes. So um, mm. it, it, they even actually mentioned that we could actually miss the the target. So that was also in everybody's, you know, uh, thinking that yeah, it could be a hit or miss. So we were just praying till the last seconds and minutes before impact. Now, what I'm interested to know is that uh, from my perspective, watching on a little computer screen, uh, I, I, I could see the, um, uh, the main asteroid uh, in the picture as, as uh, Dart was moving past it and uh, you, could, you could get a pretty good insight into what, uh, what that particular asteroid looked like. But as we got to the moonlet, uh, dimorphous, um, it, it became more and more vivid. What what was the the picture definition like from your perspective? Because uh, I was able to make out rocks and and, and debris on the surface of the uh, the moonlet uh, on a tiny little computer screen. How, how did it look to you? Well, it, it how, how it looked to you guys is how it looked to us, but it just happened to be in a bigger screen. Yeah. We, uh, yes, yes, because what happens is that. Dart is taking pictures in seconds before the impact. And obviously once those, uh, I think they needed at least three or four pictures because it's a suicide mission, basically, uh, that that whole satellite is going to be gone. So I think now that they're looking at the pictures and probably it's going to be coming out in, uh, in NASA available once the, uh, the pixels and grains and everything that they fix after editing the pictures. But as how you guys see it, that's the same thing that we saw just in bigger screen, just with people screaming in the command center and everybody just like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so describe those last moments as, as the spacecraft was about to, to hit. How, how did it feel where you were? How did the people respond? How did uh, those that were... Uh, in control until those last couple of minutes. Um, how, how were they reacting to the whole situation? Everybody, uh, actually, the moment that we saw how Demorphos looked, we were already like, okay, okay, yes, yes, come on, hit it, get it, get it. So it's basically kind it's, of like... It's not a donut. We're not going to go through the middle. We're not going to go through the donut shake. So thank God, thank God. Okay, all right, one more minute, a couple of more seconds. And here we go. And everybody just started screaming and shouting and, you know, like a moment of really relief that mm. uh, years worth of, um, of, of, of dedication uh, has finally come to an end. But basically, uh, they were able to hit the target. Yeah, I, I heard that the um, the miss margin was like 17 metres. So they were pretty close yeah. to hitting exactly where they aimed, which yes. is fabulous. Yes. Mm. Of course, that's not the end of it, is it? It's the end of the spacecraft. It's done its job. It hit the target at 22,500 miles an hour or whatever the speed was or 14,000 miles an hour, 22,500 kilometres an hour. Uh, Now they have to analyse the data and see if it did exactly what they hoped it would do, which is knock the moonlet off off its trajectory slightly. Indeed, I, I believe uh, the European Space Agency is also going to have uh, a follow-up um, project to to see the you know the after the after effect of of the impact. So yeah, probably I, I have heard they're possibly going to send another craft out uh, at some stage. That, that's the plan I heard. It's called yep. Hera. H-E-R-A. Uh-huh. Yeah, I knew you'd know, Fred. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, um, got a, I've got a question for Marie Claire, if I may, and sort of along those lines. Um, so um, DART was accompanied during that uh, suicide mission by a little CubeSat called Lycia Cube, uh, which is an Italian spacecraft, yes. uh, which was there to sort of film what happens. I think it followed... Um, it followed the darts spacecraft by about three minutes so the impact itself may well have been recorded by the lissy cube do you have any inside information about when we might see the images from that that will be still classified until they 
they put it out. Uh, we actually had yeah. a press conference afterwards uh, with the whole team yeah. for Dart, and they have mentioned that that the secure that uh, they have to look at the pictures first and then study the data of of the uh, the recording before they put it out in public. Yes. So. Okay. I I did see uh, something online today, which uh, I don't know if it was a telescope or or something, but they did show a sort of a um, an image of uh, the the moonlit as it got struck, and there was some kind of plume that came off it as it um, as the impact happened. But I, I I don't know if that's real. It looked fairly genuine to me. Yeah, I think ground-based telescopes were actually observing, but this thing's 11 million kilometres away. Yeah, and, it seemed uh, <laughs> a bit odd to me. But, um, yeah. but anyway, it, it I, might be the, real. Who knows? What I heard was that the Lycia Cube images um, might be released towards the end of this week. So that okay. sort of ties in, Marie Claire, with, with your insight there about that. Mm. Uh, uh, I would assume they're being a... processed by the Italians because it's an Italian spacecraft. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we've had a question come in from YouTube asking how long it'll be before we get the results. My understanding is days, possibly weeks. What's your understanding, Fred? Oh, for in terms of the orbit, um, yeah, it, it's it's a question of well, it go, um, Dimorphos goes around uh, Didymos once in eleven hours. Roughly, if I remember right, it might be nearly, nearly twelve hours. Actually, I think, uh, and so that's a short, quite a short orbital, orbital period, and there should be an immediate effect with this acceleration. Uh, the hope is that it will shorten the orbital period. Um, I think um, that the hope is that it will actually knock several tens of minutes off the orbital period. But I think the mission's counted as a success if it knocks 10 minutes off the orbital period. So that okay. those results, they might take a while to come. But yes, I would guess um, certainly within weeks, we, we should have some really good insights into that. Mm. What about, do, some... do you know any more, Marie-Claire, on that? On that, I, I that's what I've heard too, in a couple of weeks. That yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. I got some uh, feedback on that uh, that image I saw of the impact plume, and uh, we're being told it was in fact a ground-based telescope in South mm -hmm. Africa that took those images. So mm -hmm. it looks like they did actually get vision of the impact from from a, a ground-based telescope, which is extraordinary. It's um, it's a pretty good. Uh, if it was a fake, it was great. Obviously, it's <laughs> it's not. It really it really was uh, uh, filmed. So. That's fabulous. Uh, anything you'd like to add in conclusion, Marie Claire? All I can say is wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's uh, another thing. That's a signal that. <laughs> no, uh, basically, I'm this, the, the the dark mission is the first planetary defense uh, with with yeah. uh, mm. uh, deflecting an asteroid using a kinetic impactor because there are other different methods of of deflecting uh, other hazardous uh, celestial bodies. But this is the first time that we're actually doing it in history. So yeah. um, we made it, you know, like we were able to also witnesses, witness this. So this is something that is spectacular. And uh, hopefully we don't mm -hmm. have experienced that in real time uh, to be doing that. But just the, the mere fact of, being able to send out a test shoot like that is is uh, is truly remarkable in you know in science uh, innovation industry. Quite a, it is quite so. And uh, as NASA said, if we do nothing, something's going to whack into us one day. So yes, we do need to look at options when it comes to defending the planet. And the other options that have been talked about in the past are gravity tractors, which would need decades to be. Uh, effective, so we wouldn't have that much notice. I wouldn't think in some circumstances, and they they might not work well on very big objects. Um, the other option is nukes, nukes. and I think Fred, you and I have talked about nuclear the nuclear option before, and it uh, it has its own limitations. It would be a last resort rather than a first option. 
because if you hit a rock and blow it to smithereens, that's fine, but then you might be showered in dozens and dozens of rocks, which is an even worse situation to face. So the deflection option sounds like it's probably the best bet going forward, and uh, we wait with um, bated breath as to whether or not they've uh, they've succeeded. I like um, I like deflection. Sorry, go on, Marie-Claire. Go I'm ahead. so sorry. If you actually, I, I just wanted to mention that uh, there is this, we had uh, the opportunity to see a private viewing of this uh, documentary called Asteroid Hunters. So I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. And it was written and directed by Phil Groves, who was also with us during the viewing. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, as what NASA said, and even uh, the planetary defense have said, that that is the most accurate uh, information that one can get when it comes to to uh, anything deflecting asteroids, you know, as opposed to mm. the movement that we see. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> I I, li- I like um, the idea of the kinetic impactor a lot better than the option that you didn't mention, Andrew, for changing the orbit of an asteroid, painting half of it white. Um, because oh yes, <laughs> painting it white. If you can do that, uh, actually puts an imbalance in the in the thermal properties of the of the object, and you you get you know radiative effects. You've got to have years and years a, a warning though in order for something like that to make any difference at all. But yeah, yeah a, good, a good clout is I think the most direct way. Um, I loved, forgive me, uh, Marie Claire, but and you will have seen this um, uh, as, an, an, as, as a scientist who's many, many times looked at um, the readout of images from astronomical instruments, uh, where basically the, the the image reads out from one side to another. We do it all the time in uh, astronomical spectroscopy. But I loved that final image from DART where the readout started but then stopped. And so we just got the top, um, you know, the top segment of the image showing the surface of Dimorphos and then nothing, which told you unequivocally that the thing had done its job and been blown to pieces by the impact. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. because it, it, it went red afterwards. Yes, I saw the red, yeah. Yeah, yeah me too, yeah. yeah. I think people should be able to um, watch the video if they haven't already seen it on various online platforms and on the news, uh, but they should be able to uh, go to um, the NASA website and, and look it up and uh, and watch the, the, the video of it because uh, it, it's worth it's worth watching. Uh, I didn't realise I'd get so excited watching it, um, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, I got caught up in the moment as it, as it got closer and closer and my eyes just went wider and wider and finally, <laughs> boom, gone. LOS, you, I think, is what they said. You were watching history being made, Andrew, as Murray yes, Claire yes, said. Indeed. It's a historic moment. Yeah. Mm. Indeed. Uh, Murray Claire, thank you so much for staying up in the middle of the night uh, after flying back to uh, your home after such a, an amazing day at uh, NASA to watch the DART mission. We so appreciate it and we were glad we could uh, link up with you and and have a talk about it. Thank you so much. Yes. Look, you're welcome to stay and watch the rest of the show or you can um, tuck yourself off into bed. It's up to you. Okay. Yes, you thank you so bed. much. <laughs> Andrew and Fred, and, you know, I can't wait to listen to this uh, session uh, for the next one. So, again, thank you so much. It's an Very honor speaking to you, Andrew and Fred. Thank you so much. Have a good one. No, it's been it's been a pleasure, and I, I just want to say thank you so much for making yourself available in the wee small hours, and um, stay safe. Thanks so much. Yeah. Likewise. Keep up the good work, Marie Claire. Keep up the thank good work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate, and I, I appreciate you guys just you know uh, doing what you guys love and sharing everything to us. It's something that I look forward to listening every week. Thank you. We appreciate it, um, and and uh, we'll we'll talk again soon. Definitely. Sleep tight. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye, Marie-Claire. Thank you. And this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. here also. Space Nuts. Uh, now, Fred, let's move on to our next topic, which is Mars-related, and this involves a Chinese rover that's uh, made a fascinating discovery, and it adds more weight to what we were probably thinking about Mars's um, 
you know, we'll call them salad days when it when it uh, had liquid <laughs> water, when it yeah. uh, you know had um, properties similar to Earth until all of that was blown away by its uh, its unfortunate uh, weak gravity situation. Yeah, that, this it's really interesting, and and some of the details of this have surprised me. I have to say, Andrew. Um, so this is results from the Jurong rover that we know has been working on Mars pretty well since the Perseverance landed. They they both caught the same window to get from Earth to Mars back in July 2020, was it? They were launched, I think that's right. Uh, And um, Perseverance landed in February 2021. Uh, Jurong, if I remember rightly, uh, I think stayed in orbit for quite a while before the rover was deployed down on the surface. Um, and it's been very successful. It's uh, working well. It's um, a, a smaller rover than Perseverance. It uses solar panels for its power source. Uh, and uh, we've seen some lovely images from it, actually, some really quite remarkable stuff, um, including, uh, wasn't it? Oh, no, that, no, that was um, that was Chang'e, the, the one that had a tent on the horizon of or a shed or something that was on the moon. Uh, one of these images that looks like something else. The good old uh, pareidolia coming into play to um, to make us think we're seeing something that we're not. Anyway, yeah, yeah. that's not part of the story. Uh, what's, um, what makes Jurong interesting is that it has a quite sophisticated ground-penetrating radar system, <clears throat> which um, works at two frequencies. Um, <coughs> excuse me, high-frequency radio waves that um, actually give you really detailed images down to about 10 metres under the ground. Uh, But then if you want to look further, you go with low frequency, and because it's lower frequency, you get uh, uh, not as good detail, you don't get the same resolution. But that will take you down to 100 metres, which is really quite extraordinary. Getting penetration of radar to 100 meters below the surface i know uh, yeah is that is amazing yeah very significant so um what what uh, the scientists have done is identified um different layers within the ground beneath the jurong uh, rover uh, and there's uh, a, a, a two two layers which have sparked their interest one which is somewhere between 10 and 30 metres below the surface, uh, and another one which is somewhere between 30 and 80 metres. So a de- two distinct layers. Um, it's, uh, th- th- these numbers are a bit vague, probably because those layers are actually, they vary in depth, and Jurong's uh, got the capability of driving across the surface and and actually probing ground penetrating radar at uh, you know in different places so those uh, layers though uh, the the upper layer is relatively thin the older layer is relatively thick uh, and both of them have um probably reflections that speak of large boulders uh which are sort of down at the uh, you know at the base of whatever layer we're looking at with with smaller boulders settling on top and this is being interpreted as the possible result of flooding uh, that was actually really quick um what uh, one news outlet has described as catastrophic flooding uh, mm. so something that took place really quickly and uh, they, I, what they do is they identify these two layers with two flooding episodes, uh, which uh, the lower one uh, was probably in the region of three billion years ago, maybe uh, a little bit earlier than that. In fact, um, something like uh, you know the time that we think Mars was uh, was a wet, warm and wet world. That's uh, looking back to the the you know the era when uh, when basically when when we th- we think those uh, ocean sediments were laid down in the northern hemisphere of Mars and probably when the flooding was taking place at Jezero Crater, which is where Perseverance is, um, and I should mention 
that uh, the Zhirang Rover is is actually in a region called Utopia Planitia, uh, which is a, basically a huge plain area, not that far actually from Jezero Crater where, where Perseverance is, but certainly too far for them to meet up and shake hands or whatever mm. they do when you're a rover. Um, so <laughs> that's that three billion year old sediment is kind of what you'd expect. But then the upper se- sediment, is suggested to have been created by a flood only 1.6 billion years ago. Uh, and that is much more recent, of course, in the, in Mars's past. And it's, yeah. it's outside the region when we think liquid water existed. And so something's happened at that time. Uh, there, mm. We know there were, there were glaciers on Mars at that time. And maybe, you know, there was some sort of, uh, I don't know, some sort of, uh, climatic uh, anomaly. Uh, maybe they had a, a, a an El Nino event uh, on Mars, which is caused by water, but doesn't happen on Mars. But you know what I mean. You, you've got a, a warmer period than usual, and so perhaps some glacial melting, uh, which gave you this flood uh, and deposited these boulders in the region underneath Jurong uh, only 1.6 billion years ago. So that's really interesting interpretation now this all comes with a caveat because um with the equipment that um the chinese rover has got you can't separate or you can't distinguish between um sedimentary material which is stuff deposited by water or lava which is not mm. stuff deposited by water and in no. fact um we've recently seen some results um which i think came from perseverances uh, radar um, detection because uh, Perseverance also has uh, subsurface radar, uh, which showed that maybe Jezero Crater itself has a layer of lava uh, underneath it, underlying it. There's there's quite a lot of really interesting stuff coming out about this at the moment. Um, not the, with with this inability to distinguish between sedimentary rock and and um, basaltic rock lava. Um, so mm. igneous rock. So um, that the jury's still out on that. But um, the likelihood, though, seems to be that these boulders might very well have been formed by a flood of some kind, the ones that have been detected by the Chinese rover. Uh, and, um, well, we, we wait to see whether any more information might come, come out about that. Uh, and th- it is even possible that there is ice underneath there as well. The they mm. authors of the work um, say that they can't actually eliminate that possibility, that there might be salty ice underneath the surface. Quite incredible. And look, it stands to reason that lava is a plausible explanation because a new theory about the death of the dinosaurs has surfaced uh, in the last week or so, suggesting that, yes, the asteroid uh, impact or impacts Mm-hmm. As we recently discussed, uh, certainly were yeah. con- major contributing factors, but uh, they also have um, found that there was a lot of volcanic activity uh, yeah. around that time too, which might have finished them off. off. And they, they've um, suggested there was at least one lava flow that covered an area as big as continental Australia, which, yeah. <laughs> you know, that yeah. imagine the effect of that. Yes. That, yes, that's right. That's um, uh, I, I have seen some of that. Not not recently. I have seen um, work that suggests that it was partly volcanic as well. And there's the mm. possibility that it was an impact that actually shook up the volcanism. Uh, oh, you know, very so that, likely. So that you've you got if 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 you get clout by a 15 kilometer diameter asteroid, could do all kinds of things to the to the tectonic uh, activity in the region. At the very least, put an extra hole in your head. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. If you're a dinosaur, that's right. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but uh, it's a fascinating discovery, and hasn't China been amazing with everything that they're yeah. uh, they're doing? Yeah. Uh, and, and from what I've been reading recently, they've got bold plans. They um, they're looking to get to Mars. They're looking to um, um, put uh, well a rover on Mars. Uh, they're going to take the UAE with them. Um, everybody's um, sort of um, got their eyes focused on China because they're they're really doing some extraordinary things, as is NASA, though, as we just discussed. But, uh, yeah, yeah, China's certainly galloping along in leaps and bounds uh, when it comes to, uh, what have I heard people call it, Space Race (laughs) 2.0. Well, it's good. And, um, you know, Space Race to Mars is 
is a good thing because it'll tell us more about Mars. <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, yeah. it will indeed. Mm. All right. Um, I, I, yeah, I, and I, I hope there's more to uh, tell about what uh, the Chinese rover has discovered beneath the surface. I'm just so amazed by the technology that can get so, down so deep on on a rocky planet like that. Yeah, that's mm. right. It's pretty good going. Yeah, it is. You're listening to and perhaps watching Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Who's pretty sure that? I just said that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Where did that come that's, from? <laughs> that's, that's a new, that's a new, um, new person. Oh, a new little thing know. there. Whoa. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've been playing with my equipment. I can tell. Let me rephrase. <laughs> I've been playing with the new digital equipment. Um, <laughs> dear Eddie. Uh, let's yeah. do some questions. I'm going to hand it over to Bob from North Carolina. Uh, he's got a ripper for us, which uh, works well with what we've been discussing on this episode in regard to the DART mission. Good morning. This is Bob from Asheville, North Carolina in the United States. In a prior message, I think I heard Dr. Watson say that an asteroid impact would actually be more devastating if it landed over water than over land. And this seems pretty perplexing because you can just imagine there'd be a lot more damage done if it, it hit land. So that, the question is, what actually happens when these asteroids hit the kind of damage they cause? And I also wonder, what if it hit in some unique places, uh, maybe Greenland, the Arctic, or even the Antarctic, and it, it didn't just collide, but it actually either melted all the ice or, or dislodged it so there were massive repercussions after the initial impact had uh, occurred. Uh, thank you. I, I love the show and look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you, Bob. Lovely to hear from you and a great question. And, uh, yeah, water or land, which, which would be worse? I think you I think you have talked about this before. Yeah, it, and I, I think that, you know, the answer as always with these things is, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> and what, one of the things it depends on is is the mass of the asteroid, how big it is, you know, whether we're talking about something uh, that is a dinosaur killer, uh, in which case it doesn't really matter where it lands, uh, or something a bit smaller than that. And I've seen recently um, simulations. Now, I think they were in connection, Andrew, with that. Do you remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about an asteroid, it might be a couple of months ago, uh, an asteroid impact off the coast of Africa, which has yes. been kind of uh, linked with the Chicxulub impact, the, yes. the, the dinosaur killer. And that certainly landed in what was then an ocean. I think it was relatively shallow ocean. But the simulations mm. showed um, the, the impact. And the first thing that happens is this sort of hollow cylinder of water is raised to an enormous height uh, with the sort of centered on where the asteroid hit. Uh, and that basically kicks off a tsunami, uh, which probably would go all the way around the world at least once. Um, as I think that the, you know, the idea with the Chicxulub event was that it did that too, because that hit in a shallow sea as well, the what's now the Gulf of Mexico. So, yep. um, that that's one effect, but when you've got something as massive as that, the, the water as massive as the, as the dinosaur killer, the fifteen kilometer one, the water really uh, is a is almost an aside. Uh, it probably puts a lot of steam into the atmosphere because of the heat of the of the impact. Um, mm. But you know, it's it, when you look at um, when you look at the simulation of an impact like that. You can see that the rock itself behaves almost like a liquid. Um, it gets pummeled by this thing. There's a huge crater formed, and then it bounces back. And this all takes place within a matter of minutes. And you get yeah. a mountain range higher than the Himalayas, um, which then collapses uh, just because the energy is involved. So I think at the end of the day, with a big impact, it um, it's not going to make much difference. But with a smaller one, it might do. And maybe the tsunami would be more devastating than the local uh, sort of explosive damage that you would that you would get. Uh, Didn't so we discuss some time back that there had been a study done that suggested it wasn't so much the size of the object hitting us, but what 
part of the earth it hit depending on what was in the crust that's another aspect of it as well yes Mm. i mean um in in the end size is everything but you know there are there are it's a nuanced um, thing depending exactly as you say on what what sort of materials are there and i can't remember there was something wasn't it um potassium rich rock i think that story was connected with that said that something like that would do more damage than than you know milder forms of rock i can't remember the details but yes i think you're right um that's that's certainly true just as a as a little aside um i suppose it is somewhat related you talked about the the way water would plume if um an asteroid hit an ocean or or a sea uh, the Tonga volcano I read the other day um, uh, blasted 50 million tonnes of water into the atmosphere, which they think yeah. is going to affect our climate for a few years, uh, possibly well, maybe, make us a bit warmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That was fascinating. Um, it's certainly uh, that explosion was, yeah, it was comparable with a you know a reasonable sized asteroid coming in. So imagine. yeah maybe 50, 60 metres or something like that. So, I mean, technically speaking, we got to experience the effect without the (laughs) total destruction of the planet, although it was uh, pretty devastating for the locals, which um, uh, they're still coming to groups with. Thank you, Bob. Lovely to hear from you and a terrific question given what we've been seeing from NASA this week. And now, uh, look, I hope I got your name right. I'm not sure. It's, uh, I think it's Boz in The Hague. And this is um, a, a fascinating question that we're going to um, have a bit of a talk about. Hey, guys, this is Boz from The Hague in the Netherlands. I uh, love the show. A um, couple of questions. Um, I've been reading uh, The Three-Body Problem a Trilogy by Xixin Liu, um, and in recent episodes, you guys were talking about the Drake equation and Dyson spheres and the James uh, the James Webb Space Telescope making all these uh, exciting discoveries on exoplanets. But I've been curious. Uh, first of all, do you guys know about the dark uh, forest theory, uh, his uh, second book, but also the theory that comes along with it? And if you do, I'm really curious what your guys' opinion is about that theory. And third, final question is, uh, with the James Webb Space Telescope making all these uh, fascinating, beautiful discoveries, should we actually be looking for extraterrestrial life? Or is that something that might even be a danger to our civilization and humanity and stuff like that? Um, Once again, love the show. Would like to hear from you guys. Keep up the good work. See ya. Thank you. I hope it's Boz, but um, thank you anyway. Lovely to hear from you. Hope all, all is well in The Hague, one place I didn't get to visit while I was in the Netherlands uh, about four years ago, but um, maybe I'll get back there one day. It's, it's uh, a Fred, um, <laughs> I believe so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we only hear um, about it uh, in the news from time to time for all the wrong reasons. Well, there's a really good reason why we should talk about The Hague, and that is mm. that it was in The Hague on, I think, the 23rd of September, 1608, that the telescope first appeared in the historical record. And um, Marnie and I went there on the 400th birthday and celebrated with a cake that was made for us by the cake makers to the Dutch royal family uh, that had a chocolate telescope on top. We had a party with all our tour guests there on the, uh, in, back in 2008 to celebrate the 400th birthday of the telescope. Yeah, it's a great spot. Some mm. fantastic history there. Great scenery. Schweningen is the name of the seaside town that's associated with it so great spot mm. should go next time yeah. andrew i, I <laughs> should indeed yes i'd love to <laughs> so now let's... um boz asked about the three-body problem now i've just done a bit of um a quick look and it was by a chinese writer uh lu um xi jin uh it's um the first volume of a of a series uh now i understand it's science fiction but um I've never heard of it and I haven't read it, so obviously I'm not in a position to, to comment on it. Um, but I think, it I think, brings into being dark force theory. Yeah, I think one of our um, 
I think we've had a listener question before on the three-body problem. Uh, right. or maybe it was uh, on a broadcast that I was doing with a listener question. I can't remember. But it certainly crossed my path before. So I don't know mm-hmm. what the dark force is that's in that book uh, that the author has um, identified. But there is, the, there is a constant um, speculation in the world of physics that the four fundamental forces of nature that we recognize, uh, the strong and weak nuclear forces, the the electromagnetic force and gravity, that those forces are not all that there is. And that there is a fifth force, which is sometimes called quintessence, uh, which Uh uh, has been, uh, actually has been um, identified by some as maybe what causes the dark energy that we see in the universe. Uh, Mm. And that's perhaps where the link comes from, the dark bit. So um, quintessence at the moment, it comes and goes, you know, it pops up every now and again in uh, physics papers and then disappears for a while. It's one of these things that's uh, a bit unfashionable and, and, or fashionable and unfashionable, but then um, it may well be that we've, finally do secure some observations that might reveal that there is a fifth force. And there is work that's gone on quite recently, and it's about the decay of the W boson, which is one of the forces that carries the weak nuclear force. Uh, It behaves in a peculiar way that some have said is an indication of new physics and perhaps will lead us to the fifth force, the dark force so that there's work going on with that and um I, I probably should be more across it than i am but it does come and go as i said it's it's a bit like fashion it um you know suddenly we're all talking about quintessence and suddenly we're not anymore um yeah. but it's it has been linked uh, as a you know as a as a perhaps a, a source or reason for the for the dark energy that we we believe is what's causing the universe to expand ever more rapidly. So the, those two, I think, are linked together. Yeah. So now the third question, was there more or do you want to go to the third? No, that, I was question? going to go, yeah, move on to the, the next bit. Right. Yeah. Should we look for ET? Um, well, yes, we should. Um, mm, as long as, I agree. As long as we, uh, because looking doesn't actually uh, make us dangerous. Uh, sorry, it doesn't bring us. Uh, doesn't put us at any higher risk than we are already from ET yep. finding us, um, because the you know we as a species have advertised our presence for a long time, uh, not just by radio waves um, which are emanating in a sphere in space, which is now something like um, probably 140 light years in diameter, uh, if you count the um, you know the the first uh, high-powered radio signals in the 1930s as being when we became radio bright in the in the universe um mm. that's there's that as well as the fact that you know the, the the earth is fairly bright in the visible spectrum as well because of all this light pollution that comes from cities uh which are easy to detect so we we're already advertising our presence and there isn't you know the, the the idea of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence is not one where you go out and say is anybody there even though there is there are plans to do that uh, that's still a problem that i think needs ethical consideration uh but um it's the the, the search for et is really basically um a, a search Using the same equipment that we use to study astronomy uh, and space science, it's 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 telescopes, it's things like the James Webb Space Telescope. It's not sending things out there, although there are probes out there. Of course, the the five spacecraft that are leaving the solar system they are they're also um, markers of humankind. So we're, we've already done it. We've already advertised our presence. So what we're doing now in terms of looking is not necessarily dangerous. You've given me an opportunity to play with a new toy. Oh, good. You ready for this? Yeah. Because I'm going to quote Pink Floyd. Is there anybody out there? (laughs) You like that? That's very good, yes. Uh, You were perfectly in in sync there. (laughs) Very creepy. Um, Yeah. The answer might well be no, but um, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't stop us from looking. 
Well, yeah, and we are looking. Uh, we're looking but, for the same things that we produce, light, radio, yeah. uh, which is a form of light. Uh, we're also looking for um, spectrum signs uh, in yeah. their atmosphere, for yeah. things that they have made that aren't natural. Um, what else are we looking for? Well, uh, the point I was going to make was the, the reason why, yes, spaceships are a good one. Uh, the reason why we're, we're not, why, it's, why we shouldn't stop looking is because uh, we use the same technology to make discoveries about the universe as we do to try and find extraterrestrial life. So, you know, it's all part of building up our store of knowledge. Um, mm. Yeah, that's, spaceships is an interesting one because, you know, maybe one day a piece of space junk that would turn up that might not be able to be explained by human uh, human sources. Uh, a bit like did, that thing that crashed that into the backside of the moon. Oh, that happened farmer. to a farmer in southern New yeah. South Wales recently? It turned out it to be did. SpaceX or something? I was going to say, it said, except it said SpaceX on it. But yeah. um, the one that crashed into the backside of the moon that nobody has owned up to, that's an interesting mm. one. <laughs> that is. Yeah. I, I, I have my suspect. Yes, yeah. I know you do. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Boz, thank you. Great set of questions made uh, for some interesting discussion. Uh, but, yes, I think looking for ET is a good idea until we find them and they don't like us. Mm. And then, we'll, well, um, then, we'll, but, then we'll throw rocks at them. Yeah, it won't be by looking for them that they'll find out about us. That's the no, point. Exactly. <clears throat> Good point. All right. Um, just about time to call it quits. Uh, it's been a long but very interesting show with Marie-Claire mm. Mercier joining us uh, after her trip to NASA to watch up close and personal the DART mission uh, yesterday, our time. Uh, but if you do have questions for us, uh, jump onto our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Click on the AMA link and you can send us a text question or you can send us an audio question or there's a tab on the right-hand side to send audio only, and all you need is a device with a microphone, like this one, <laughs> see? Yes. Yeah, yes. And um, I'm replacing that, by the way. I'm getting a new one. It's going to be much bigger and in-my-face type of scenario. <laughs> uh, but, um, yes, so please send us your questions, and don't forget while you're there to catch up on uh, the back catalogue, our past episodes. Uh, please leave your reviews on your favourite podcast distributor because uh, the more reviews, the more we get noticed and the more people who join us and the more fun we have. Uh, you can also uh, visit the Space Nuts shop where you can find all sorts of goodies. Oh, I forgot to tell Murray Claire, but she'll pick it up in the recording. Um, we're sending her some presents for joining us today. So she'll get a couple of little surprises in the mail. Garbage. I forgot to do it. Well, he'll remember now. Uh, Fred, thank you as always. It's been a great pleasure. It's always a pleasure, Andrew, and thank you for your patience as well. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's a joy. There's no impatience required at my end, that's for sure. Thanks, Fred. We'll see you next week. Sounds good. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, joining us on this edition of Space Nuts, and thanks for your company. We'll look forward to your company on the very next episode. From me, Andrew Dunkley. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. And farewell to our live audience. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you again on the very next episode, whenever that will be. We've, we've yet to decide. We're yeah. about to do that. See ya. <laughs>